Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Solid Ground Church, where every week we share messages recorded during our weekly gatherings in Lewis, Delaware. If you have questions or if we can be of any help at all, please visit us on the web at solidground.church. Now, let's get to this week's message. We have been looking at uh, the beginnings of the persecution of the church. We've been going through the book of Acts, and the reason we've been doing that is we are a church that believes in being rooted in the word and empowered by the spirit. We believe that the Bible is God's inerrant word uh, and that it is our final authority for all matters of life, doctrine, and practice. And at the same time, we also believe that a faithful reading of the Bible will create the expectation in us that God still does the stuff that we read about in the book. That is to say that he still moves in power, he still heals the sick, he still raises the dead, he still speaks to his people. We see nothing in the scriptures to indicate that that should not be our expectation. And so what we want to do in, in light of that is, is not give way to tradition or superstition. Like that is to say there's been a lot of bad doctrine that's been associated with the power of God. Like really, you know, it's not I'm saying like anybody's heart is bad. It's just sometimes what happens is we believe that, that manifestations confirm doctrines and they don't. What confirms doctrines is how they line up with the scriptures. And so what we want to do as we go through the book of Acts is go, okay, like what does the Bible actually say about what we should expect that God is doing in and through us? And last week we talked about the beginning of persecution, that, okay, this movement called Christianity begins to spread from Jerusalem, okay? And people are being saved, people are being healed, demons are being cast out. It's incredible for a little while. And then the, the, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, they get jealous and they bring in the apostles. They threaten to kill them and then they end up flogging them, which we talked about last night. It scarred their bodies for the rest of their lives and they left praising God because they had found something better than this life. And today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the first Christian martyr ever. And we're gonna just tell a story. And I just wanna say this to you as we go into it. Listen, um, I've, you know, I've been thinking through, I've been praying through, okay, like, who is this story for? And, and here's the, the consolation I, I just want you to see. Um, you should just know this. The only people who get through this life where people don't judge them, reject them, hurt them, um, if they're following Jesus, the only people who get through this life unscarred are those who stand for nothing. You should expect hardship for the gospel. You should, I know, like, it'd be easy to be like, hey, listen, just follow Jesus and you'll never have any problems again. Good luck with that. That's a false Christ, okay? You should expect hardship for the gospel. And today, what I want you to see, and what I hope we see as we go into the scriptures is, what is God's attitude towards our suffering for his glory? Because he actually has one. And we're gonna get to it. So in Acts chapter six, and it's a big story, and we're gonna, we're gonna go across a lot of scripture today. Um, so just buckle up as we read. And so in Acts six, starting in verse one, it says this. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So in other words, the church is growing and there are people and they're going, listen, like you guys aren't caring for our widows and our orphans and those who can't take care of themselves enough. Like you need, like we understand that you want to preach, we understand that you want to heal the sick, but listen, we've got some practical needs. Like we need people to be taken care of. And so it says this in verse two. So the 12, talking about the 12 apostles, gathered all the disciples together and said, 
it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, here's what they're saying, okay? One time I, I, I knew a guy who took this passage and he would say, this is where things began to go wrong, when the apostles got above serving people. And what he was doing was he was projecting his own issues with authority into that passage. That's not what this passage is not going, hey, listen, because they were preaching the word, that meant that they believed they were somehow better than serving people. No, what happens is they had been commissioned by Jesus himself to carry the word. Instead, they were fulfilling their calling while delegating out responsibility. And so it's within this backdrop of, hey, we care about poor people. We care about those who can't feed themselves. We wanna make sure that they're okay, that the following thing takes place. And so it says this. Brothers and sisters, is what they say to do. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so the whole, uh, this whole proposal pleased the group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, uh, I always want to say Timon because I like Lion King. I don't know. Uh, Timon, Hakuna Matata, uh, Paramenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And this is like, whenever you see like, okay, laying on hands, what that is, it, it's symbolic of a transferring of spirit, okay? And, and now look at the result, by the way, okay? So they do this, they pray for them and says, so the word of God spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, quick little note why this is remarkable, just two uh, pastoral things and then we've got to keep moving for the sake of time, okay? Number one, I want you to notice that it's, as it turns out, God is not against uh, good organization and delegation, all right? So they delegate to these other people and as a result, the word of God spread, people get saved and they're disciples, so win-win. I just like to bring this up because sometimes we, people sort of like inherit a hippie sort of view of the spirit where they think like it's just all about being led and like whatever happens in the moment is somehow God. But if you plan well, God's not in it. I just go, they planned well and God was in it. Okay. So let's get away from that. Second thing to note is that it says that a large number of priests uh, became disciples. The reason is, and this is so cool. The reason is this, um, because priests up until that moment were the ones who were charged with taking care of the poor. And so you, they see this group of people who they don't have to, but they're taking care of the poor. They're making sure that people are being fed. They're making sure that widows and orphans are being taken care of. And they go, why are they loving them so well? And as a result, they turn to the gospel. Now, what would happen if the world saw how well you love people and went, man, I want some of that? Because that's what happens here. Come on, all right? And so that's the backdrop. Verse eight says this. Now, Stephen a man full of God's grace and power performed great wonders and signs among the people. My man is crushing it. Not only is he waiting on tables, not only is he serving well, but he's also <laughs> doing miracles. Like, all right, Stephen, go on. And, and we're gonna find out he's a really smart guy. And so it says this in verse nine as a result, because you'd think, okay, well, if he's doing miracles, it'd be fine. Actually, opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen as it was called, the Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of uh, Sicilia, or Sicilia, I, I'm, I'm having a name David today, and Asia, uh, who began to argue with Stephen. Okay, But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So they're being like, like you're saying Jesus is the Lord, but come on, like that, that doesn't work. And they're having these 
this fighting, but the Holy Spirit has enabled Stephen. And so every time they try to debate, he's just thrashing them. Because as it turns out, God's smarter than us. And when God's speaking through somebody, they tend to, you know, do well. And so they're, they're looking at us like, we're not getting anywhere as we're trying to argue with this guy about the faith. And so it says this, verse 11. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So, hey, when you can't win with integrity, what do you do? You lie. And that's what they're doing. So they're beginning to rile people up. Hey, listen, this guy that you think is so great, actually what he's doing is he's undermining uh, the Bible and he's undermining our traditions and our heritage. And so it says, verse 12, so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. And again, these are the very people who killed Jesus. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And that's the charge. That Stephen doesn't care about our heritage. He doesn't care about the Bible. He doesn't care about our people. That he actually wants to undermine everything that God is doing in the name of Jesus. And then look at this. Verse 15 is really interesting. Verse 15 says this. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw his face was like the face of of an angel. Now, let me explain to you what this term means, because it'd be easy to read this and think like cute little baby cherub where you just pinch their cheeks, right? Um, but that's a modern artistic uh, viewpoint of angels. Angels didn't look like little naked babies with wings in the Bible. That's not, that's not right. Um, angels, actually, usually speaking, um, look like people. But, but what the author is getting at here is this idea of, um, this is what this term means, um, that, he, that he stands there unfazed. In other words, he is aware that he is in the presence of God. As he stands before everybody, he's got this unwavering confidence that, okay, hey, I know who I am. I know where I am. I know why I am. I know who's with me. You can't shake where I'm going because I know in whom I have believed and I have confidence that he is able, okay? That's the idea, that, okay, that it's not like Stephen cowering, that he's not like, oh my gosh, what's gonna happen? But I said, he goes, no, let me just tell you something. And with that in mind, what Stephen begins to do is he begins to give them an address that's gonna rock them. And so he looks at them and he goes, all right, you think I'm undermining Moses? You think I'm undermining God? You think I'm undermining our traditions? Let me tell you who Moses was. And let me tell you about our traditions. And let me tell you about God. Let me tell you about why we are where we are. Hey, you think I don't know about what it means to be Jewish? And so he starts out and he goes, brothers, this all began with our father Abraham, didn't it? It did, right? God told Abraham, I want you to leave everything you've ever known and go to a land that I will show you. And they're going, yeah, that's right, yeah. That's how this started, that, that Israel began with Abraham. That's right. And Abraham and his wife, they couldn't conceive, and so what happened? God gave them a child. Our father Isaac, and they're going, yeah, that's right, like, like he was the son of promise. Yeah, I guess that's right, that's right. And from Isaac came uh, Jacob and Esau. Right? Our, our father, Jacob, who became Israel. And, and, and Israel, you know, he, the Lord took care of him as well. And he, and he had many sons who became the patriarchs, right? And, and among them, there was Joseph, remember? Because before Abraham died, what happened? Well, God, God told him, hey, listen, I, I'm gonna bless your, your descendants. I'm gonna give them a land, this land that we're standing in right now. And he goes, but know this, before all that happens, your descendants will be in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. And they're going, yeah, that's right, that's right. That's exactly what happened. 
And so what happened? Well, God raised up Joseph. He saved them from famine. Joseph was in Egypt and he delivered them and he provided food for them because God actually supernaturally made Joseph the second in command of Egypt. And they're going, yeah, that's, that's how God took care of our people. He goes, that's right. And when they were in slavery, because there arose a Pharaoh who didn't care about Joseph, didn't remember him, he enslaved our ancestors. Enter Moses. And go, yeah, yeah. He goes, and what do we know about Moses? We know that Moses was an exceptional child. Right? Moses, <laughs> he, was, he was not like the other kids. In fact, God delivered him and brought him into the house of Pharaoh so that he didn't grow up thinking like a slave. And then one day when he became a man, he went out, he saw how his own people were being oppressed and he, and he struck and killed an Egyptian who was hurting an Israelite because he thought, okay, if I do this, they'll rise up and move with me. But they didn't. Moses meant to begin a rebellion and as it turns out, he had to flee for his life because it went nowhere. No, that's right, yeah, that's what happened. And he went out into the wilderness and there God spoke to him. He begins to tell them about how God spoke through the burning bush and how God gave Moses a supernatural calling to lead his people. And everybody in the room, like, yeah, that's exactly, that's it. Wow, you know, Stephen, you know, we thought you were against Moses, but you've got, you've got the story really right. Okay, we thought you were against the scriptures, but as it turns out, you know them really well. He goes, yeah. But let me tell you about something about Moses' story that we don't talk about very much. And so, in Acts 7, 35, jump forward. This is what he points out to them about their history with Moses. He says this, this is the same Moses that they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through an angel who appeared to him in the bush. I.e., when Moses showed up, our people didn't embrace him at first either. Now, hold on. Because there are people who pride themselves on being followers of Moses. There are people who pride themselves on, okay, listen, we are the people of God. We, well, like, we were there with, with Moses in the wilderness. He goes, and yeah, you didn't want him. And so he says in verse 36, he led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in the desert and the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. And this is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. Let me explain to you what he's referencing, okay? He's referencing the book of Deuteronomy. See, here's what happens. You should just notice as you read through the Old Testament, there's a reoccurring narrative that's never resolved. And here's what it is. Who will be a faithful partner with God? So it starts out with Adam, right? Like God creates Adam and Eve. And in the garden, they're, they're entrusted the earth, right? To rule on God's behalf. And they turn against God, they rebel, right? And the creation breaks. We talk about this a lot, okay? And then you think, okay, maybe it'll be Noah, okay? Because Noah seems to be a good guy. And, and as it turns out, no, Noah, the very first thing that he does after God saving his life is he goes and gets hammered, right? Like he's not faithful to God. Either. I mean, we can talk about David, how David had, like maybe he'll be the faithful king and maybe he'll be the one that like will faith for, like faithfully walk with God on the earth. As it turns out, no, David has this little thing with Bathsheba and kills her husband. Like, no, it's not David either. And you find this over and over again in the Old Testament. Like the question is like, hey, who will walk faithfully with God? And here's the spoiler, nobody does. Nobody does. Even Moses. 
See, Moses, who is this prophet who like knows God face to face, you think, okay, he's like, God has used him to deliver his people. They'll walk into the promised land. And Moses, one day, he never addresses his temper. He never addresses his anger issues. And one day it costs him everything because God tells him, hey, go speak to the rock. My people need water. Speak to the rock. Tell it to bring forth water. And Moses is so sick of the people complaining, he walks up to the rock and he's like, listen, you rebels. Should we bring you water? And he smacks the rock with his staff. And what he's doing is he's publicly disobeying God. And God goes, you can't lead them into the promised land. I need my people to be different. You're not going to be. And so Moses goes through this. And if you read the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy at points is really cool and at points I think hilarious. Um, because a lot of it is Moses' farewell address to the Israelites, like he knows he's going to die. And I say hilarious because he never quite gets that it's his fault he's not going in. Like he'll say to them, like he'll still, like, still blame them, be like, because of you, I can't go in. Like, no, dude, you did that. All right? But, re- but listen, God's faithful to Moses. He loves Moses. Like, like when Moses dies, God's the one who buries his body. Right, who didn't want that funeral? My gosh. All right? Like, have God as your pallbearer? Jeez. All right? Um, But as Moses is approaching the end of his life, in Deuteronomy 18, what he does is he goes, listen, I'm about to go, but I want you to know that God is going to raise up somebody like me in the future. And this is what he says. Deuteronomy 18, verses uh, 18 and 19, he says, like God speaking through Moses says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. This is what Stephen is referencing. He will tell them everything I commanded him. And I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. Now, really quick, here's what he's saying. God is going to raise up somebody in the future who's going to faithfully speak everything that he hears. In other words, God is going to raise up somebody who actually will be faithful. And don't get like, and it's easy to, to read the, these things right here and get tripped up because you know, if you're a Christian, you go, well, he's obviously talking about Jesus. And we would say, yes. And you, and you go, well, but he says a prophet like you, but isn't Jesus more than a prophet? And what happened, the, the reason you might get tripped up there is because we, we have inadvertently sometimes, uh, a, we've linked uh, ministry uh, duties and responsibilities with rank. In other words, we, like we treat prophet like it's a rank, like general, commander, what have you. Um, but the word in the Hebrew there for prophet, it's navi, um, and in Greek, it's prophetes. But, but what it means is somebody who speaks on behalf of someone else. Okay, like it's, it's, why, um, it's why if you go to the beginning of Exodus, uh, when, when Moses like, is arguing with God because he doesn't want to go back, and he's like, I, I, I'm slow of speech and I'm slow of tongue. Like, I, God, I don't talk good. Remember what God says to him? He goes, listen, I'll raise up Aaron to be your prophet. What's he saying? Hey, I'll raise up Aaron to speak on your behalf then. Okay, so don't get tripped up with, I mean, like, can prophet sort of mean you know, one with visions and, and, and speaking uh, on God's behalf? Absolutely it can and many times does. But the idea here is, listen, when he says, I'm gonna raise up a prophet in the future like you, what he's saying is, I'm gonna raise up somebody who will speak on my behalf. That makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? And the crazy part is this, so Moses, he prophesies this and he dies. And then look, here's like, as Deuteronomy wraps up, here's what, like, what the author of Deuteronomy reflects and says, like years after Moses dies in Deuteronomy 34, verse 10, it says, since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. 
In other words, there were prophets. There were lots of them. There were guys who, who saw like visions from God and spoke on God's behalf, but not like Moses. That's what God promised through Moses. And again, in the Old Testament, this person never shows up. And, and you go, well, okay, well, what kind of prophet was Moses? What did he do? Well, number one, um, he delivered God's people, right? God's people were in slavery and he delivered them. And we say, okay, we go forward to the New Testament. What did Jesus do? Well, we were in slavery to sin, to wickedness, to the world, and he delivered us, right? Uh, Moses was the lawgiver. He was the one who said, listen, if you're going to walk in relationship with God, this is what it must look like. What does Jesus do? Hey, if you're going to walk with me, here's what it's going to look like. He brings covenant, like Moses brings the covenant, right? Listen, if you're going to be, like, like, to be part of the people of God, here's what that looks like. Here's how you walk and go into covenant with God. What does Jesus do? He brings a new covenant. No other prophet in the Old Testament does this. And so what Stephen does, going back to our story, is Stephen is looking at this, he goes, listen, Moses prophesied this guy was coming. And so you shouldn't be surprised. Jesus is the prophet that Moses spoke of. And then, but here's the crazy part. Stephen goes, and not only have you missed what Jesus is doing, but listen, you're not that different from our ancestors that you take such pride in. And so he says, it, and by the way, it's about to take a turn. So verse 38 says this. He, talking about Moses, was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our ancestors. And he received living words to pass on to us. But, our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. And as for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and revealed in what their, or and reveled uh, in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. And this agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your God, Rephan, and the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Okay, in other words, here's what he's saying, okay? Guys, you're, you're claiming I'm undermining our people. Let's acknowledge that our people have never been very good at walking with God. Okay, like, so you're saying like you're undermining our traditions, but here's the thing, our traditions, like we're terrible at this. And then on top of that, you want to understand how God works? Here's why you're rejecting everything that I'm saying right now. Here's why Jesus has stood among you and you've missed him. The reason is this, because God will give you over to your sin. Do you know that? Hey, look, can we just, for a second here, do you know why it is that like, like when you choose to turn away from God, like it doesn't get harder to do that, it gets easier as you become more spiritually numb? Do you know why that is? Because God, he doesn't look at you and he doesn't go like, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do? He goes, if that's what you want, if that's what you want. Now listen, in his grace and his mercy, and I would say his sovereignty, there are times where he awakens you. He goes, listen, turn from that, come back to me. And praise God for that because who among us would survive if he didn't? But if you understand like God's stance toward the world as it rebels against him, it is one of, okay, if that's what you want, go right ahead. Why? Because he's not an insecure king. He is still king whether or not we choose to follow him. Okay, and that's the idea here. Okay, listen, what, he, what Stephen is saying is listen, God's given, okay, like he gave them over to Babylon so that, and by the way, in so that embracing that, they might be broken by it. 
And how, do you, how many of you know that? Okay, so sometimes God will give you over to it so that it breaks you, so that you come back in repentance, right? Okay, and he goes, that's what happened to them. And by the way, now he's standing in front of the Sanhedrin. He goes, that's what's happened to you as well, okay? He goes, he's going, listen, not only do I respect Moses and God, but actually you are the ones who are being faithless. You're the ones who don't love God. You're the ones who, who are missing the point. Jumping down to verse 51, let's see how they react to that. Stephen, he just amps up the heat and he says this to them. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised, meaning you're, like, you're still seeing and hearing things like people who don't know God. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Hey, you think I'm a blasphemer? Actually, you are. By the way, he's not making an angry accusation. As we're gonna see in just a minute, he absolutely loves these people. It's a plea. Well, he's saying, listen, you need to turn from this. Like you're, you're walking towards your own destruction because God said, listen, I'm gonna hold account anybody who rejects the words of this prophet that I'm gonna raise up. Well, he's raised up Jesus. And if you don't turn to him, God will, not might, will hold you accountable. How many of you know this? In this age that says, unless I appease you, it means I don't love you, right? In this age that says, okay, listen, in order for me to show that I love you, I have to like, conform to your twisted view of yourself and the world. How many of you know that when, sometimes when you love somebody, it means saying no, right? Like when you love somebody, it means you go, okay, listen, that's bad for you. And because I love you, I'm gonna tell you that's bad for you. Okay, and that's, that, that's what's going on right here. He's like, he's absolutely bringing them to the mat, not from a place of pride, not from the place of like, he wants to be right. No, it's because he sincerely cares about the people that he's talking to. And we're gonna see that so explicitly. And so he's, he's saying this, this like crazy thing. And so go forward, verse 52. He says this to them. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? Dang, Right? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. You know, you guys are saying, well, we've got these prophecies of the Messiah. And he's going, you killed the prophets who said he was coming. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You, have you who have received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. What's, what's the, what, what does he mean? Like you've received the law, but not obeyed it. What's the core of the law? Love the Lord your God, right? They haven't done that. They've rejected him. And so it says in verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Ah. This next part. Oh man, this next part. But Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Let me tell you why that's so significant. This reference, son of man, it, it, as you're going through the Old Testament, particularly the, the book of Daniel, you'll find things where it talks about like how there was one who appeared like a son 
of man and was led into the presence of the ancient one God and was, was made to sit down on a throne. Like, you know the story, like I think it's Daniel 7, right? Beyond that, there's this, there's this image of the Messiah where upon conquering, what he does is he sits on the throne of God. Okay, I'll give you an example. So um, I don't have this in, 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 I don't think I have this on screen, but I'll just, it's Psalm 110 verse one says, the Lord says to my Lord, David's prophesying the Messiah. He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay, so, so why is it significant? Oh my gosh. That when Stephen looks up, he sees Jesus standing. It's because Jesus is giving him a standing ovation. Right? Like here's the son of man. He's done everything. Like he's been faithful to the end. And now he's, like he sits on the very throne of God. He sits enthroned. And when he sees what's happening with Stephen, he stands up to welcome him in. Like, can I say this? Like, okay, for the longest time, for the longest time, like when I thought about, um, when I thought about suffering for Jesus and, and, and you know, I was stabbed in the back or had this happen, had that happen, okay? And I think most of us have had those moments. I'm not trying to, to compare scars with you. But I always, I, I always thought of it like this. I thought that it's not that God was indifferent, but it was just that he was, it was almost like his emotional response to me would be the sort of, well, yeah, that's what you owe me. Like you, yeah, you, you go through this. But well, of course you do because you know what? I, I'm good enough, and, and you should, you know, you should be willing to give everything. And I miss the fact that His heart is for me. How many of us do this? Right? We think of God as this sort of indifferent stone monolith in heaven. Okay, yeah, He loves us. Okay, but He's just He's sort of unmoved. And one day we'll stand with Him and we'll go like, "Wow, aren't you amazing?" And all those things are true that He is amazing. But I miss the fact that He's championing us on. Like, do you know that? Do you know that? Okay, like, man, okay, I've had this happen. I've had that happen. I've had them say this. I've lost this. I've lost that. Let me just say this for the one. Okay, listen, you, like, you've gone through it at work, and, and, and you were forced to choose. Okay, like, could I be faithful to God or lose my job? And you said, okay, I'm going to be faithful to God. Or, okay, like, you know, you had a spouse or a, or, or a significant other, and they wanted you to compromise here, and you knew it would make your life so much more miserable. I mean, I could just go on and on and on and on, okay? All right, and it'd be easy to think, well, yeah, it's just the right thing. And, and, and of course, God would expect that. I mean, well, yeah, he does expect the right thing of you, and yet he is moved by it, and he champions you on. Like, that's the story right here. Stephen is about to die, and when he looks up, he sees Jesus looking at him and going, yes. Like, that the Son of God who could be sitting stands up from like, that's so powerful. And so look at this, verse 57. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named, pay attention, put in that name for later, Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, and guys, look at this. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, and these are his last words. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What moves the heart? I get Jesus praying, you know, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's Jesus. 
what moves the heart of a regular Joe who's waiting tables? To pray for the very people who are murdering him. Can I just say this? Like, okay, um, if I'm being killed, I want God to very much remember the sins of the person who's killing me. <laughs> Don't you? But here's, here's Stephen, and um, he's going, Lord, I love these people. Don't hold what they're doing right now against them. Because you see, for him, it wasn't about being right. It was about loving them. And can I, can I just say this? Um, the reason he can do this is because Stephen knew Christ. That's why. Look, hey, brother, sister, um, to the one who is holding on to bitterness and unforgiveness and aggression, for the one who's got a mental tally of folks and how they've wronged you, they've never done that. They've never slain you for the gospel. And if your brother can pray for the very people who are killing him, you can let it go too. Like, I'm sorry, if the Holy Spirit is in you, you have all the power that you need to forgive. And I would just tell you this, like as you're looking at this, you're wondering like, how could he do this? I've just learned that typically when we hold on to unforgiveness, what it means is that we're not quite aware of our sin that God has cleansed us from. I mean, you might be aware that you're a sinner, but you've probably minimized how heinous you actually are and how much God in his overwhelming love and compassion has blotted out your sin. And so, listen, here's a little just thing. If you want to write this down, here's the thing to understand. A heart that has truly experienced God's forgiveness is not stingy with extending it to others. So here's Stephen. His body's hit the ground. And he's gone into glory. And their story it begins to wrap up. And it would easy, oh my gosh, it's easy to view this as this calamity has befallen the church. What will they do? And that's kind of where it seems like things are about to go. But just pay attention, okay? And so Stephen dies. It says this in Acts 8.1. And Saul approved of their killing him. And there's that guy again. So like, who is this guy? Like, why is, why is Luke, who wrote Acts, bringing up this guy who's like a young guy who's hanging around as people kill the first Christian martyr? And it goes on. It's, it says this. It says, and on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. That's a weird little detail, isn't it? Essentially, there, there are four proper nouns in that sentence. There's Saul, there's Jerusalem, there's Judea, and there's Samaria. And Luke, Luke he's talking this through, and, he's, and, and here he is years later, and he's remembering how the church uh, went through the stuff that it went through, and he's remembering the, the, the death of Stephen. I mean, the, the, the detail about his face means that somebody who was there told him about what happened, and he's looking at this and he's looking, okay, listen, the church grew and like, you know, they're, 
it, it was spreading like wildfire. They were enjoying favor, and everybody was really, really happy in Jerusalem. And suddenly the hammer comes down, everybody scatters except for the apostles who stay in Jerusalem. And he's going, Saul, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. I've heard those places in succession before. And what he's doing is he's reminding you of something earlier in the book. You know what? You go way back to chapter one. When Jesus stands with his disciples on the mountain, right before he ascends up into heaven and he tells them, oh my gosh, hey, it's not for you to know when I'm coming back, but let me tell you what's about to happen. And he says this in Acts 1.8, remember this? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Okay, so, so they started in Jerusalem. Persecution happens. There's Judea, as we're going to see. Goes to Samaria. We're going to see that. And then here's the crazy part. The ends of the earth. That guy named Saul, later on, God's going to turn him into a guy named Paul. And he's going to carry that gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, here's why I bring this up, and I just like, just, I, want, I want you to take just a little bit of comfort, okay? Because it's easy to look at this story and go, oh my gosh, things have fallen apart, things are bleak. Hey, hear me, here's the thing to understand. Nothing stops the gospel. Nothing, nothing. There is not a will of man or arm of the enemy that can thwart the power of God. Um, Here's why, and if you're taking notes, write this down, because God never loses. He never does. He, like, he never loses. Even when you think he has, he hasn't. Um, can, I, can I say this? All right, um, I, I'm coming to the end. You're like, when's he gonna stop? Very soon. Um, but look, look, look. It's easy to, with concern, and I think rightful concern, look at the spirituality of our country. It's easy to look at how people are so backwards that they don't even realize what gender they are. Like, what? To say nothing of the murder of babies, to say nothing of redefining of the very unit of the family. Like, it's easy to look at all this and be like, where is God? And I'm, by the way, and I'm not saying that we don't, with everything that we have, fight against the tide of the darkness. I think there's biblical precedent for that. And I think as being salt and light, we have a responsibility as the people of God to take a stand in the times that have been entrusted to us. Okay? But here's what I want you to hear. Because people, they love to play the worry game. And like, well, don't, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. And here's what I want to tell you. Even if we were on the wrong side of human history, we're always on the right side with God. Because he never loses. I don't have to worry about losing that game. And the reason I don't have to worry about it is because I know that even, like, I'm, I'm gonna give my all. I'm gonna give my all for these people. I'm gonna give everything that I can to reach this country. I'm gonna do and everything I can to reach this community, do everything that I can to say, all right, listen, this is who God is. This is what's right for you. This is what's right for me, okay? And this is like according to what he has designed life to be. And that is right and good. But here's what I want you to understand. Take comfort because even when we have setbacks and even when things get bad, God never loses. And if we see that in the story of the first martyr ever, that actually Jesus is standing there watching it. 
He's not unaware. He's not on a movie. He actually stands up and goes, that's mine. That boy's mine. I don't have to live in fear of God failing me. And you don't have to live in fear of God failing you. Why? Because God never loses. And we have been promised by Jesus himself that the gates of hell will not prevail against his kingdom. Take comfort in that. Yeah. Okay, sure. I'm going to applaud that. Cough clap. Yeah. Sorry. We're, we're mostly white. It's fine. I get it. I get it. There's always that like, can I, can I say amen? Yes. Look. With that, how about we go to our Father together in prayer this morning as we wrap up? Dear God, you are faithful. And you are worthy of our praise. What are we that you should be mindful of us? You have chosen to clothe us with Christ. We stand in your presence, not because we are good, but because Jesus is good. Lord, we couldn't find you apart from you leading us, and you have led us so faithfully. And you will see it through to the end. Lord, we thank you because nothing stops the gospel. And we would rather walk with you than give way to lies. And Father, we thank you for our brothers and sisters who have suffered for the sake of your name and for our sakes. We would not be here without the Stevens. We thank you for their sacrifice that you allow them to endure to the end. And you've welcomed them into glory. And Lord, we ask you, would you allow us to be faithful to you until the end as well? Whatever that looks like. Because you're worth it. You are worthy. You're better than any social acceptance we could have, any financial stability, any work relationship. So many of you're more worthy than any mom we could have on this earth. You're more worthy than the family tensions we encounter. And we say yes and amen, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.